Um, but I know we're getting to know you guys. You guys are getting to know us. Uh, P.S. Like, we were eating breakfast a minute ago, and there was a breakfast pizza that we only ate half of. If anybody wants an extra snack, come and get it, my man. Like, listen, it's, it's, it's good, man. Undoubtedly, it's good. It was overpriced. It was good, dude. All right? It looks fire, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks good, dude. Um, I, re- I remember, like, when I was a student, I was just like you guys, sitting in class underneath the tent. It wasn't here at Fire and Fragrance. It was in Pimba, Mozambique with Iris Global. And I remember, anybody, any other Iris Global alum in here? What's up? What's happening? Let's go. Holy given. Uh, sitting under a tent, uh, not as nice, uh, more hot. But I just remember how hungry I was all the time. And so we were thinking about throwing away the half of the pizza. We're like, no way. We're about to be with 50 fired up students. Somebody will want this pizza. So be blessed, my man. Is it good? It's solid, right? All right. So, um, yeah, we're just going to basically introduce ourselves, tell a little bit of our story. And then I'm going to give you kind of a life message on the journey uh, that is required of anybody who wants to change the world. How many world changers do I have in here this morning? <laughs> Let's go. How many of you guys are like, man, I want to write history? Yeah. You know, uh, Winston Churchill has this quote, and it says, History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. And that is the mentality and the mindset that I want every single one of you guys to have this week. If you don't have it right now, go ahead and adopt it in Jesus' name. Because history is supposed to be different because you are alive. God doesn't raise up anointed bench warmers. Everybody's called to get in the game for God. If you are alive, if you are saved, if you are anointed, smeared with the oil and the blood of Jesus Christ, as the result of the cross of Calvary, like you've been anointed to make a difference and to win with Jesus. Do you believe that? Yeah. All right. So, my love, sure. take it away. What, what do you want me to share? Awesome. Uh, <laughs> okay. I will. Um, so, first of all, we'll get this straight at the first part of the week. I am a words of affirmation person. So, if we're not laughing, yelling, having a ton of fun, then I'm just going to be like, board up here so just let's get ready to like not because you guys are boring but just because I'm like I don't want to hear myself talk all the time I want to I want to hear uh, what's feeding you so it's good just we're all friends here and uh, it's a, literally like such an honor for us to get to be here my name is Allison I'm sure you heard that but this is I never did any sort of uh missions oriented ministry school I had the opportunity to go through Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry that's where uh, I went to school Uh, when Lyle and I (laughs) when Lyle and I first met I was in my first year of school um, out in Reading and I told him that we would never ever work out because I had no intention of being a missionary and being on the mission field. And at the time, uh, you'll hear some of his story, but at the time he was full-blown in missions. He was, uh, we're still in missions. It just looks a lot different now, but he was in India and Africa and kind of ping-ponging between the two. And I was like, I feel super called to uh, the local church, which was like very strange. I'm like, I just feel super called to see um, the local church in the West fully alive to its purpose, and I just don't see myself 
doing what you're doing. So it's so nice to meet you, but this is never going to work out. And here we are, six years, seven years after that conversation. Will, won't God do it? He will do it. <laughs> but I, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, so that's where we, we are at currently. Uh, that's where our church plant is, Legacy Nashville. And I was born and raised in Nashville. It's, like, very strange to be somebody who's born and raised in Nashville. Uh, most people are transplants. Nashville is experiencing this massive economic boom right now. Uh, all over the nation's people are moving to Nashville because Nashville is very kind to small businesses and businesses in general. Um, so we're getting like all these this flux of businesses who have used to have plants in like New York and LA, um, where now the business tax is getting really really high. They're flooding Nashville because we are we just we're a debt free state and so businesses just super thrive there. Um, so I was born and raised there. My family, for the most part, lives there. And I am in love with the city of Nashville. I'm in love with the people of Nashville. I think that Nashville is the greatest place on earth. I think Nashville is like heaven, which is if you, if you don't want to move to Nashville, don't talk to us after this because by the end we're like, you just moved to Nashville, be with us. Like, yeah, whatever. So just ignore us when we say that. But um, I'm 29 years old. I've been in full-time ministry for seven years now at this point, and I've been a lead pastor of a church for about five years at this point, I guess, and it has been a crazy journey to get here. I am probably the most introverted, least likely to hold a microphone person on that I know. I, it's just not how I'm wired. I'd much rather be in like the back of the room with a headset on, bossing everyone around uh, from the back. I love that. But the Lord is so strange, and I mean, I don't know if some of you got here almost by accident, like you somehow wound up at this school, and you're like, Lord, I didn't know this is what it was going to look like, but I'm here now. Um, but that's kind of been my experience throughout my life in ministry. Um, I have been in love with Jesus for my entire life. I have um, what I feel like is such a beautiful testimony. There's never been a season of my life where I ran uh, from the presence of God. I've pursued Jesus. When I was four years old, I had an encounter with the presence of God in my bedroom, and I've just never left him since, because there's something about having an encounter, right? There's something about meeting Jesus face to face. You can be convinced of, you know, great ideas and make a decision early on in your life out of innocence and say, okay, like, uh, sure, I'm going to follow Jesus. But when the rubber meets the road, that's when most people eject from the from their connection with God because they haven't had that face-to-face -face encounter. And it's so God's so faithful that he always shows up to us in his goodness and, and with his presence. And I just was so blessed to have that encounter when I was a kid. My parents stewarded an environment in my home where the presence of God was normal, um, where I heard about scripture and I heard about healing and the real-life raw power of God from a very young age. And so I just, I don't know, I was in this environment, and, and by the time I was four years old, I was like, Mom, my son is four years old now, which is funny thinking about this, because he's like, all he does is play Fortnite and do BJJ. But for me, I was just a very serious type, and I was like, I just want, I want to get baptized. And when I was five, I gave my, I got baptized, and and I've spent a majority of my life just trying to get closer and closer to God, and I, it's, it's such a strange thing because God is so near and yet 
it begs a deeper connection all the time. And I think there's this beautiful tension in our walk with the Lord that's like he's right with us, but there's this opportunity to go further and deeper. And so that's kind of my story. I went, I went to school, high school um, in Nashville. And then when I graduated high school, I felt like the Lord was calling me into ministry. And I didn't really know what that looked like because, like I said, I'm, like, the least microphone-holdy kind of person on the planet. And if you know Nashville at all, it's just big churches with a lot of people wanting to hold microphones. And I was like, this is just, I don't know what this looks like. And I had a heart and I had a burden for the lost. And I had a burden for uh, oppressed people groups. Um, my dad's black. My mom's white. I'm a biracial child, the product of a lot of racial tension in the South um, growing up. So I just have this, I have this massive heart for um, oppressed people groups. And I grew up burdened. I remember the very first time I ever heard of, of child pornography, I was walking across my parents um, in front of the threshold of their bedroom door. And I heard them say, isn't that so tragic? Isn't that so tragic? And I looked in and I saw this um, this news story of these kid, this like child pornography ring that had been uncovered. I was like five or six years old. And I remember in my heart looking at that saying like, that's not okay. And, and with my life, I want to make sure that no other kid has that experience. And it, that's just been a driving force for me. I, I think that people are messy and I love that. And I've been so undone getting to walk with people uh, in ministry and throughout my journey of life. And so by the time I got to college, I, I was lost. Um, I, got, I went through a very intense, rigorous private school education growing up. And so there was like so much pressure to do well and go that journey of life where maybe I got a degree and I went into the workforce. I was like, what the heck am I going to do? All I, know, I, just, I was like trying to get a social work degree. I just didn't know what to do, right? I'm like, I just want to help people, but nothing felt right. And I could not shake this heart for ministry. I just couldn't shake it, even though I didn't see anybody doing it in the way that I was wired. I was like, I don't see anybody doing it like me, but I'm just going to go for it. So after my second year of university, um, I went with my younger sister out to Bethel and that, and it changed my life. Um, like I said, I had always been aware of the presence of God. I had always been aware of the reality of God. But when I got to Bethel, I, I just, I saw him, you know, like, and I saw God working through so many different kinds of people. And that's why I love schools of ministry. That's why I love these opportunities because you get around people who are hungry and it helps to stoke your fire. But even more so, you get around hungry people that are so different from you and you see the full picture of the kingdom, right? You're like, oh, if God can do it through you, like he can do it through me. Oh, God does it that way and he does it that way and he does it that way. And it unlocks your full potential when you're around a community of people going after God because we're all so different, right? Like, I mean, you're not like the person sitting next to you at all and that's okay and that's beautiful. And sometimes it turns to tension and competition, but, like, the holy response is it to stoke your fire and to say, okay, God, like, if, if that can happen for that person, I want to see what that looks like in me. And that's what Bethel was for me. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a wild experience. And my sister still lives out in Redding, California. She's my best friend. She runs all their admin for their second-year school of ministry. And I ended up meeting Lyle somewhere in the midst of all of it. Praise God. And, 
that, like I said, that was a wild experience. I said, we'll never be together because you're on a completely different train than I'm on. Like, you're headed in an opposite direction. I'm sorry if I burp because I've been drinking kombucha, so just bear with me. Um, <clears throat> so I'm like, you're headed on a totally different train than I'm headed on. Like, this is never going to work. There's no way. And the Lord is so sneaky. One of the things I'm like, one of my favorite things about Jesus is that he is so sneaky. He's so sneaky. Y'all think it's a straight line between you and your, like, your promises of your life. But that is not true. And you have to detox from that idea. Otherwise, you'll live life so disappointed because it's not going the way that you think it's supposed to go. It is not a straight line between you and your promise. It is a very windy mountaintop and valley and round in a circle because you won't learn the lesson and then you know like that's that's what our journey was like and somehow we found ourselves married after trying to not be married for a while or like just this is not going to work and there's something that I learned on the other side of building a family that unlocked something for my life that was so powerful I for me family and the whole idea of family and church and the local church and what it looks like to do community together is the only thing to me that makes sense about the kingdom. Like I, there's so many things about God and about how he moves and how he works that just confuses the fire out of me. And there's something about family that makes all the mess make sense, right? It, there's something about connection there's something about covenant, and there's something about forgiveness that makes everything make sense. And the only way that I can des describe it is, is when you get really close to somebody, you run up against all their rough edges, and you find out that you have some rough edges too. And as you connect, things soften and things get more beautiful. I can tell if you've been all alone like in a first conversation because you're prickly and you're like edgy and I'm like, oh, you actually haven't allowed the community around you to soften your edges. And that's one thing that I love about getting to do ministry together. You know, there's a hundred different ways to, to steward ministry and there's a hundred different ways to steward the calling of God on your life. There's not just one picture, okay? Be released from that. There's not just one picture of missions. There's not just one picture of ministry. It's not just one type of person that can lead a movement. There's not just one type of person that can lead the masses. Um, the Lord is so faithful to take dumb things and just make it look like genius because you're like, it must be God. And that's why, that's family. Family is so dumb because it shouldn't work. It just shouldn't work. And that's why, and there's something so healthy and, and whole about it because with God, family makes everything beautiful. And when we got married, we took a deep dive into this lesson of family. And I'll, I'll let Lyle share some of his story on how we got here. But um, when we got married, the Lord downloaded to us this whole idea of, of church as family. And to be completely honest, in Nashville, that was not the framework for a long time. I don't know where you guys come from and what, like, the church climate or the missions climate is like where you come from. But for us in Nashville, church is, they nicknamed it the buckle of the Bible belt, um, which means that it's the it's the place where 90% of the world's Christian publication comes through. All music, writing comes through Nashville. 
books, yeah, all sorts of curriculum. Most every book you read, the publishing house is in Nashville, uh, like Christian public publication. And so there's just like this stale feeling, almost like this religious nonsense that people were like running from. So for me, that's terrifying because the Lord's like, you're called to the local church and you're called to see revival and missions break out in this context of a city, in the context of a family. And I was like, well, why Nashville? Because nobody wants to be a part of <laughs> Nobody wants to be a part of this anymore because it's so fake and it's so exhausting and everybody has to look a certain way and talk a certain way. And that just wasn't us. It just wasn't us. We just weren't that. We were tw I was 23. I'm still probably the youngest lead pastor in the city. Um, you know, we were just kids. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. Everybody was like, this is never going to work, and, but God. And I think, that's, I think that's the joy of the journey with Jesus, that, that you think and what people say can be so critical and so, oh, it's, I know some of you came here and your parents were like, you better not. <laughs> <laughs> or your family was like, you're going to do what? Or, you know, that mentor in your life is like, you're going to sell your what and go where? You know, like, it's just sometimes it's so mind-blowing for you to pursue the voice of God over your life. But that's where God's so faithful. It's all about the surrender. It's all about the obedience. It's all about the right connection. It's not just what you do. It's who you do it with. And so my, my like, hope for our time together we're going to have lots of time together. You guys, your classes are so long, but like, <laughs> we have lots of time together. But my hope is that you are stirred again, not just for one picture of what your ministry looks like or what God's spoken to you about, but that you learn that if your life doesn't touch and affect people around you, it's not a life worth living. That if your dreams, goals, and desires only make you look great and doesn't affect the world around you, it's one that you can throw in the trash. The Lord has an upgrade for you. Because it's all about connection. It's all about the harvest. It's all about other people. And, I mean, I think that's been my, my learning lesson over the last five to seven years is, you know, if, it, if my dreams and desires stop with me and they don't affect the world around me, then it's something that I, the Lord wants to upgrade. So I'm, I'm just praying for upgrade this week, that the Lord would just upgrade your vision, that he would upgrade that where hope has kind of been lost and deferred, that, like, the Lord would just give you new hope and that he would upgrade your, your idea of what you can do and what he's going to do through you. So that's, I mean, that's a little bit of my story. We'll probably get more into um, our journey as we, as we go on throughout the week. But here you go. Awesome. Amazing. So um, are you going to stay up here for this part? You should. Because I want to keep talking about you. Um, so, you know, some of her, some of her testimony, some of her story, some of her upbringing, um, so good to hear, so refreshing to hear because I think, you know, she has the real testimony. I don't know if you guys have been a part of a youth group before where somebody comes in, they share a super scary story about how terrible their life used to be and how they were rescued by Jesus. And everyone's like, I want a story like that. No, you don't. Okay. I can promise you that because that's the kind of story I have. I'll share that with you today 
with you now. But when I look at people like Allison, when I look at Allison, I'm like, you are a sign and a wonder. Like, you have the real testimony. You, you never left the companionship of Jesus. You walked in intimacy with him in season, out of season. And I think that's really beautiful. And honestly, guys, it is the kindness of the Lord that I would be able to be married to this woman because God knows that I did not deserve her. Out of all people on planet Earth, the Lord chose us to be together in marriage. And uh, honestly, it is mind-blowing every single time that I think about it because I am the last person that should be deserving of a woman like this. That is the absolute truth. And... um, And so for me, you know, I'll tell you guys a little bit of my story, and you'll get a clear picture as to why I'm so undeserving in just a moment, because I kind of feel like Paul whenever I talk. I'm like, dude, I am the chiefest of sinners. Like, I am a terrible, terrible person. So I actually grew up in church. Not anymore. Yeah, thank God for the blood of Jesus. But um, I actually grew up in church. Also, my, my parents got saved when I was three years old, and I'm from a village in West Kentucky called Sacramento, all right? It's got 600 people. There is no chain restaurants. Like, you can't even get a Subway sandwich there. There's one stoplight in the entire county of 10,000 people that is 90% farmland. So when I tell you guys, like, I grew up in a village, I'm telling you, I grew up in the sticks in the middle of nowhere. There is no entertainment there except for basketball, which is why I mentioned Steph Curry and his greatness in Jesus' name, as well as the fact that it's just get into trouble. It's like you either play sports or you get into trouble, or you do both simultaneously if you happen to be that gifted. So (laughs) for me, you know, growing up, um, I did get into sports at an early age because it's just what everybody did in Kentucky. And uh, my parents, like I said, they got saved when I was just a kid. And pretty soon after, you guys kind of will get this picture about me specifically, I think, as we continue to hang out and swap stories. Uh, But my whole family is just all or nothing type people. And so when my parents get saved, they immediately decide, we're going to trailblaze into ministry. It doesn't matter what it looks like. We'll sell everything. We'll leave everything behind. We got to go get the lost in Jesus' name. Some of you guys are like that in here also, I know. And, um, and so, you know, I grew up in church, and I didn't grow up as a nominal Christian. I grew up in a holiness Pentecostal denomination. So I don't know if you guys know what holy, holiness Pentecostalism is, but uh, there's a lot of wonky theology. I will say that because they believe some crazy things. Like you ever see those people at Walmart that like, you know, just look like the type of religious people you never want to be like? That was me as a kid, okay? I grew up in that denomination, and, um, and, and there was a lot of craziness to it and things I disagree with now, but I want you guys to know that God can move through the last people you think he should. And that's what I find fascinating about Jesus as you read his story through the Gospels. He's constantly hanging out with the last people you think he ought to. Like, Jesus is so faithful to shock you by spending time with people that deserve no time from him. Like, the people that should be the furthest from God, the people that he should be repulsed by, are the exact type of people you see him having sushi with. You know, it's like, what? Jesus, I am so shocked. You are audacious. Like, you would hang out with that person. They so do not deserve favor. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
It's true, right? You ever been fasting for something? Like you're going after it in the spirit every day when you guys do worship. You're like pressing into God. Lord, I need this thing. I'm going after this breakthrough in Jesus' name. And then somebody comes up at the end of worship and testifies to receiving the exact breakthrough from God that you've been pressing in for. And you know for a fact they have not. <laughs> like, like, doesn't that just burn your biscuits? Like, you're so furious. You're like, what, Lord? Why would you give them that breakthrough? It is so obvious. They deserve it less than me. But that's the nature of God in Christ Jesus, is he is so faithfully blowing up our boxes that we try to put his grace and goodness into by hanging out with the last people you think he should, and especially the people that deserve less favor than you. Look, guys, God is so faithful to give you the spotlight if you are willing to defer it to someone else who deserves it less first. Like, he just wants to know because the type of people he wants to move through are the type of people that are filled with such radical grace, with such radical goodness, with such radical favor that you have no problem promoting the people that shouldn't be. You're like, look at this person. Look how favored they are. Look how amazing they are. I'm going to pick him out of the dirt of the cornfields of Kentucky and give him a hot wife. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't deserve it, dude. Like, I'm telling you, man. So, I, like, I grew up playing ball and, and like, you know, I grew up in this holiness Pentecostal church and they didn't have everything right, man. But they went after the power of Jesus. I will tell you that, man. I saw people healed in church. I saw miracles. I saw people with broken limbs get healed. They left the first service. They went and cut their cast off with a hacksaw. They came back to the second service like, what's up? Worshiping, going nuts. Like, look at this, dude. I am completely healed. I saw people with leukemia get healed. I saw people with cancer. Their, com their torsos completely riddled by cancer bring their x-rays back the following Sunday and, and be completely cancer-free. Not a single tumor found in their entire torso. I saw people with like brain injuries and brain damage that were supposed to be paralyzed for the rest of their life receive the healing from the Lord and come back and think clearly and speak in their right mind. Like amazing, awesome miracles. What's up, y'all? What's up? So happy you guys are married. You guys are the best. And uh, we prayed for them last year, which was super fun. And you guys look happy and connected. And you're pregnant. Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion and subdue the earth. Let's go. And so, you know, that was for me. Like, I grew up watching the power of God take place. But then as a kid, I remember there was this prophet, very weird, strange guy who came from Texas. And he was walking through. I know you guys are wild, man. You know, just walking through the aisles. And he was like calling out people's social security numbers. Did you guys see Sean Bowles at the send, right? You know, it's like crazy prophetic gift. So Sean and Shuri are friends of ours. And I remember when he emailed us to tell us that he had an encounter with the angel. And the father's love was downloaded. 
into him and that he was getting words of knowledge on a William Branham scale. I mean, I was like, dude, come on, Sean. Like, I love you. I've known you for a few years now, but William Branham, come on, bro. It's a little ridiculous. Well, it's happening. Look at that. And it's, and it's obviously happening. And I saw things like that as a kid. So you would be shocked to know that by the time I was like 11 or 12 years old, I was like, Jesus, you leave me alone. I don't want any part of you. You are a little scary because I know you're radical and you're crazy and you send people into places that are uncomfortable and I want to be in the NBA because it's obvious I have the size for that. And so leave me alone, Lord. No thanks. I realized that this prophet guy, very strange dude from Texas, like he's spot on and he's accurate and this is totally you, but I don't want any prophetic words tonight because I want to do what I want to do. Leave me alone, Lord. I will get saved when I'm 40. I will go to church. I will sit in the back row. I will pay my tithe and go to heaven when I die. That was my sort of, you know, process of salvation, right? It was like, go to church, sit in the back row, pay your tithe, go to heaven when you die. I mean, it's a pretty easy, very simple, you know, selfish plan. And, um, you know, so that was my plan. And at 11, when this guy was walking through the aisles prophesying to people, I heard the voice of the Lord. And he told me at 11, I tried to ignore it. I was like sketching probably a picture of Vince Carter. You know, like I would just sit and draw basketball players. You know, that's what I would do. And I heard the voice of the Lord. He told me, you're going to preach in power all over the world, and this is what you're called to. I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to play basketball, dude. That's what I'm going to do because that's what everybody in Kentucky did. And believe it or not, you know, I, I did actually play quite a bit of basketball. I, I went on to play for the Nike Kentucky All-Stars. One of my teammates plays for the Lakers. His name is Rajon Rondo. Some of you guys may know who he is. And so we played together. I played with some NFL players. Never got to play against LeBron, unfortunately. But, you know, played a pretty high-level basketball. And I thought, man, this is my destiny. I'm going to be a basketball player. That's what I'm going to do. Even if I have to go overseas, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to give my life to basketball. I'm going to give my life to sports. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be famous. And I'm going to play basketball. I'm not going to church, Lord. Until I'm 40. When I retire. Then I'll go to church. And that was my life plan. That was my life goal. Isn't it interesting when you give God your life plans? You know, just how that's such a big mistake. But, you know, we have so many people doing that who are not sinners but refer to themselves as saints. Rather than listening to God and responding to what he says about your life, we take our plans for ourselves and we present them to God and demand that he bless them. You know what, you know what I'm talking about? Like, instead of saying, God, bless my plans, bless my plans. Come on, Lord, bless my plans, trying to win him over to your side. You just ask the Lord what his will is, what are his plans, and get involved with them because they're already blessed. It's like a pre-blessed meal. You know what I'm saying? It's like praying over the groceries when you bring them into the kitchen. You know, it's like it's, it's a guarantee that whatever is on the heart of God is already blessed and will push you into the place of your destiny, right? I wasn't that mature. I was 
really kind of a tear. And at about 16, 17 years old, some of this stuff started going to my head, traveling a little bit. And I started to get like, you know, really interested in partying and being popular and, you know, having girls and, you know, hanging out with the older crowd. And I was a freshman kicking it with the seniors. And I was like, oh, man, this is so great. I love this. I'm playing ball. Forget church. I'm gone all the times on the weekends. This is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going out partying. Okay, I'm starting to drink a little bit, starting to smoke a little bit, starting to pop pills a little bit. You know, this is kind of my life now. I'm 16 years old, man. I really like this. This is super fun. Basketball starts to take a bit of a back burner. And by 17 years old, I was a full-blown drug addict. I know you guys wouldn't believe it, but by 17 years old, I was uh, drinking myself to sleep, smoking constantly, popping Oxycontin constantly, vomiting up the lining of my small intestine as a result of my drug addiction. Got to a point where I was shooting up heroin in one arm, shooting up meth in the other arm at the same time, same day. These are the friends that I kept. I moved out, got kicked out of my house because my mom found a Desert Eagle handgun in my closet. I started hanging with a street gang, then eventually ended up living out of my car and in a drug den selling crap for money, robbing people, stealing from people just so that I could eat Burger King. And when I was 19 years old, my best friend and my roommate got shot and killed in a drug altercation, point blank, right through the chest, died in the street. This became my life. Ended up getting kicked off of my basketball team by the time I was 18, completely home, homeless. All of my college scholarships got pulled back. They said, man, we, you're a discipline problem. We, we can't get involved with you. You've already been to jail. You were 16. You've already got a DUID, driving under the influence of drugs and other substances. There's no way we can play around with the kid with the criminal record. It's obvious you're a terror. And you're a pastor's kid? completely estranged from my parents, completely disconnected. I'm the oldest of four boys, completely disconnected from my little brothers, completely disconnected from my grandparents. I'm talking nothing, nothing at all. I was definitely depressed. At the very least, I was oppressed. And I will confess to you today that I was undoubtedly possessed by demons, man. I was full of demons. It's a guarantee. You know, I got my, my, like, my rap sheet out the other day. I did it for Easter because I thought it would be fun. So I went and found my rap sheet. And dude, this thing is pages. Like you could make it rain with my rap sheet. Like it's pages on pages on pages, dude. Like charge after charge after charge after charge. Like first degree assault. Uh, you know, um, amended from attempted murder, fourth degree assault, first degree assault with a lethal weapon, first degree assault, vehicular assault, trying to run over somebody with a car, uh, drug charge, drug charge, drug charge. Like, you got to understand, guys, you, you're looking at me now, you're like, you're pretty nice. I was angry, dude. Like, I would fight anybody for anything for no reason. Just, you know, I, I felt like I had something to prove, you know, the pride and the, the arrogance that I was strong and that I could make it and that I could be independent and that I could become a self-made person, you know? <laughs> you know, that's not true, right? And that, that's, what I was, that's what I was striving for. So after my friend died, you know, 19 years old, it's funny because Allison mentioned something in her story, which is like, I knew I just wanted to help people. 19 years old, watching my friend be killed. I didn't see it actually happen, but, you know, just going through the process, going through the funeral, my best friend, my roommate dying. You know, I thought to myself, I just want to help somebody. I just want to help people. And so I said, I, I know what I'm going to do. Even though I got pushed through the system in high school, barely made it through with C's and D's and paid girls to do my homework as a senior. 
I'm going to declare for pre-med and go to college. I want to tell you guys, it doesn't work when you're high all the time to pass pre-med classes. Just in case you were thinking about trying that out. And so, you know, did, did college for a bit and uh, just realized, man, like, this is not really working out. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this school thing. I think I should go back to selling drugs. I'm a little bit older now. I'm a little bit better at it now. I'm a little bit more savvy with the understanding of how things go on in the street. And eventually started making quite a bit of money doing this. Uh, my friend from childhood moved in with me, and the week before he was arrested, coming back from Alabama with 350 pounds of weed and two keys of Coke, we counted out $125,000 on my kitchen uh, table, and uh, I had an afro with gold teeth and every color Air Force Ones you could ever want. I know you guys don't believe that. You're like, that's no way. It's a true story, but I don't have any pictures. The Lord just deleted them from the, from the hard drive, man. They're gone, dude. Like, it's like, you know how he says, he scatters your sin as far as the east is from the west. Dude, I don't even have anything aside from those papers that even prove that I was that person. The truth is, I'm not that person. How many of you guys know that the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, right? You're not just a better version of your old self. Like, you're a completely new human being, right? Like, your desires change. You know, your personality changes. And so at 21 years old, you know, I send my friend. He comes back. He gets arrested. All the money's gone. He's still in jail to this day. He had shot some people in broad daylight with an AK-47. So he's like still in jail. Is this too much? I know I'm, I'm giving a lot. But hey, you know what? Look, this is a rated R message for real. Because honestly, guys, outside of this tent and outside of this base, like people are going to hell, dude. Like, people are dying, getting shot, people are depressed, people are drug addicts, people are getting neglected, people are leaving kids. Like, we have a generation of people who are truly living in hell today and are on their way to hell if somebody doesn't step up and show them what a new resurrected lifestyle looks like and preaches the gospel to them in love so that they can come home into family and know the abundance of true redemption. You guys awake yet? Hey, this is just the introduction. We haven't even started preaching yet. We've got to go for this thing, man. Listen, I didn't come out to Hawaii just to hang out at the beach, man. Like, we intend with our whole hearts, man, we're going to be fully possessed by the fiery love of Jesus before we leave here this week. All of us, every square inch of who we are, we're going to be fully possessed by the fire of Jesus. So we'll go to the ends of the earth for love with no problem being inconvenienced. I mean, think of where God has brought you from. Every time I think about it, I can't help but to get excited about preaching the gospel. I can't help but to tell people my story. I can't help but to tell people about the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. That even when I was an enemy of God, cursing at him, shaking my fist into the sky as I was shooting heroin and popping Oxycontin, the goodness of God rushed to me and said, I love you. I have a dream for your life. I have a purpose for your life. Put that down. Turn that music down. Put that out. I have something for your life. You know you're called. You know I spoke to you in year 11. You know you have a purpose. And I said, like, God, no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And guys, the Holy Spirit was pursuing me without an invitation. It'll happen. Listen, you think you're hungry for God. The truth is God's hungry for you. 
When you feel hungry, hungry for God, that is just evidence of the proximity of your purpose. Like the Holy Spirit's just getting close enough to you to where there's like butterflies in your spirit. And you're like, whoa, I feel hungry for God. But the truth is, man, the hunger that God has for you, you just stepped into his atmosphere, man. That's all it is. That's all it is, man. If we could ever get a clear picture of how hungry God is for us, we'd never have a problem being burnt out with him. There's never a season we're called to retire, but every season we're called to refire. And just go for it, man. Just go for it. So I'm 21 years old, and, uh, you know, I'm in this drug-infested apartment. I'm selling crack. I'm selling coke. I got weed growing in my closet. I got guns in the house. I mean, I'm a terrible person, dude. Drive-bys were being done on my house. Like, people were shooting at me while I was standing in the front yard. Like, I know what it feels like to have the buckshot of a 12-gauge shotgun fall on the back of my neck that hit the house above me and miss me by just a few feet. I know what the sound of bullets tearing through trees sound like. It's an interesting sound. It's an unforgettable sound. I know what these experiences are like, and this is where I was when the Holy Spirit found me for no reason. Like no church, no Bible, no TBN. Didn't even have Christian TV turned on. And the Holy Spirit stepped into this drug-infested apartment. Now, at first, guys, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit. I thought it was the cops. I couldn't couldn't explain my fear. I, I, I I was rolling up a couple of blunts, had the TV on. I was rolling them up for the morning because that's just what I did. I just constantly high. It's okay that I'm this real with you guys, right? I'm just constantly high. You need to know it, man, because people want to encounter people like like us. God wants to encounter people like us, you know? In the reality of us, not the fake us that we present through Instagram. You know what I'm saying? But the real you, like God wants to get in on the real you. The authentic you. The, you, the 2 a.m. you. You know what I'm saying? When nobody else is around and ain't nobody else watching what's really going on in your head and in your heart and the decisions and the choices that you're making in that spot. Lord wants that you. Lord wants to be super intimate, super kind, super gracious, so overwhelming with his love to that you that the public you Becomes that for other people. Right? Because we're supposed to be, I mean, Paul called us living epistles. I call that walking encounters. Right? We're supposed to be walking encounters. It doesn't matter what nation you step into. doesn't matter how dark it is. doesn't matter where God calls you to go. When you get there, that nation is now appointed for a divine encounter. And if it wasn't God's will for that to take place, then you wouldn't be there. You guys having fun yet? So so the cops, the Lord, uh, comes up the steps in my drug-infested apartment, and I'm like, oh, no. SWAT team is here. They had just kicked in my friend's door. Six of them. SWAT gear. Shotguns. Pulling people out. I said, oh, man, they're going to get me. They just got my friend. They're going to get me. So I got up super slow, and I looked out the window, waiting to see the SWAT team. Nobody was there. So I got real scared. I was like, what in the world is going on? Where are they at? 
So I just move real slow over to the door. I look out the peephole. Nobody's there. I'm like, oh, man, what's going on? I cannot believe what, you know, I'm starting to feel. I step back away from the door. And the same feeling that I had in those tiny little holiness Pentecostal churches. You guys know what the glory goosebumps are, don't you? You're like, woo, whoa, something is happening in here. You know what I'm talking about? I got seized by that feeling, man. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I know what this is. Better yet, I know who this is. This is the Holy Ghost because that's, that's, that's what they called it, you know. You're going to get the Holy Ghost, son. You know, and so I'm like, this is the Holy Spirit, man. The Holy Spirit's come in here. And like Jesus, and I didn't see him like I'm seeing you, but I'm telling you it was the person of Jesus, man. He stepped out of eternity into time. He stepped through my front door. He stepped right into my living room. The presence of God filled that drug-infested apartment. I hit my knees, and I started to repent of my sins. Tears fell down my cheeks, and I said, Lord, I give my whole life to you. I give my whole life to you. I repent of my sin. I give my whole life to you. And God spoke to me. He said, in six months... You're going to be dead or in prison unless you come home to me right now. Now, I know some of you hear that story like, there's no way the Lord said that. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. I promise you, for me, in that moment, that was the kindest thing that the Lord could have done for me. Because I was already dead. I was already in hell. I was already in prison. The natural manifestation of death in prison would have only matched up with the internal reality that I was already experiencing in my day-to-day life. He said, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to free you from this. But I knew it was no half-stepping, man. Like, I went full on for Satan. I went full on for the world. I went full on. For drugs, I went full on for money. I went full on for all of this. Popularity, to be well known, to party, to have a good time. And I'm telling you guys, I did it all. I did every single thing that you can think of to try to find satisfaction and pleasure in this life. I did it. Tried it. Experimented with it. Anything you can think of, any party, as crazy as you can think of it. Been there, did it. It's empty. It's empty. I did it. Tried it. Living out rap songs, done that too. Clubs, the girls, the money, shooting at people, done that too. Done all that. Fighting, jail, arrested, getting beat up by the cops, done all that. They don't like when you run from them. I learned that the hard way. Right. So I know you guys looking at me today, you're like, you're reading from a storybook. But this is the truth, man. This is where Jesus brought me from. And, you know, he told me, in six months you're going to be dead or in prison. But here, here's what happened. In six months I was in full-time vocational preaching ministry. Full-time vocational preaching ministry, dude. It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason that that should have happened. I mean, God bless my dad for giving me a microphone and believing in me when I was so undereducated that I didn't have no reason to be preaching. All I did, guys, I just plagiarized the T.D. Jake sermon. I preached the T.D. Jake sermon, man. I mean, I had in the margins, like, take off your coat here. Cry here. 
Scream here. Shout here. Come down off the stage here. Like I listened to the same T.D. Jake's message over and over and over again. I just plagiarized it, wrote it out word for word. Then I memorized it and I preached it. And people were like, man, you preach pretty good for the first time. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Oh, funny enough, man, that's actually how I was discipled. So I, I, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Bishop T.D. Jakes. And one day I'll get the opportunity to meet him. I haven't yet, unfortunately. But I wrote him letters not long after I got saved because every night after dinner, once I got saved and moved back in with my parents and that relationship was restored both with them and my little brothers, we would sit down every single night. And with my dad, I would watch another T.D. Jakes DVD sermon and he would pause it and let me ask questions and that's how I was discipled for the first nine months after my salvation so I thought every church was like the potter's house I didn't know you could preach in Lululemon I th it is a word bro you ever you got some Lululemon underwear Woo! dang dude I'm telling you son that'll take you to a new dimension of glory it's so nice, man. They're nice, dude. They're very nice. Anyways, got off track. I thought every church was like the potter's house, and so I showed up. Once I got saved, I went and bought myself a three-piece suit, all white with the shadow stripe and the duster jacket. Had the duster jacket, sir. Had on some Stacy Adams, fake Crocs. Went to church every Sunday like that, man, because I thought that's what church was like. I hadn't gone to church since I was a little kid, you know. And my parents had gifted me uh, for graduation when I barely made it through high school, a free round-trip ticket to anywhere in the domestic U.S., and I didn't use it until after I got saved. And I asked my parents, I said, hey, can I use that plane ticket now? They said, sure, where do you want to go? I said, the Potter's House, baby, Dallas, Texas. And I, I showed up in that three-piece suit with my towel. And I preached the bishop down in the third row. I got there 30 minutes early just to get a good seat. That was it, man. So for me, this is my origin story with the Lord. This is, you know, I know I told it very dramatic and stuff. As you can tell, I've been telling it for a while. But that's actually how I got started preaching, you guys. It wasn't that I had some great, eloquent message. Yeah, sure, I did plagiarize Bishop Jakes' message, which that may have been what we were talking about before because, honestly, guys, I think it's legal. Here's why. Because Jesus' first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at who preached that first? John the Baptist, his cousin, was preaching and teaching this sermon that Jesus stole from his cousin, packaged it up a little bit different, but then preached the message that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been preaching previously. So I think it's completely legal to take somebody else's message and preach it 
with the spirit the Lord has placed upon you because it's what's in you that makes the difference in the message. It's who you are. It's the word coming through your unique personality that is the variable. If you're thinking, man, I would preach, but I don't have a message. Well, do you listen to the Bethel Church podcast? Do you listen to Andy Bird preach? He's got some pretty good messages. Ask him for an outline. Say, hey, man, I got asked to preach at my home church. Can I get your outline? I hope for some of you guys this is freedom right here. Because some of you guys have disqualified yourself. But don't disqualify what God's qualified. How many of you guys have heard this before? Like, God doesn't even call the qualified, right? But he qualifies the called, right? Being qualified is not a prerequisite to God calling you into the ministry of reconciliation. There's no education. There's no pedigree. There's no personality that qualifies you to be called into the ministry of reconciliation, to be called into missions, to be called into world change. The only prerequisite is this, surrender. The only prerequisite is a very simple word. It goes like this. Yes. Yes. This small tiny, seemingly insignificant word will open humongous doors in the spirit for you. Yes. Yes is the tiny hinge that the big door of writing history swings on. Yes. You know, and Jeremiah says, the eyes of the Lord search the earth looking for a heart that says yes. Yes. If you learn how to say yes to the Lord, here's what I can promise you. You're going to have a good life, but you'll have an unsafe life. You'll have an adventurous life, but you'll have a sacrificial life. And the reason why a lot of people start saying no to God is because it becomes uncomfortable to say yes. Now, it's not hard to say yes when you're in love. Right? How many of you guys in here are married or you're in a committed relationship right now? Not very many of you guys. So, okay. All right, I don't think you're allowed to date, right? No dating. No dating. I ain't going to be the one to break the rules in here. Yeah. During debrief. Woo! Some of you guys already got your DMs typed out. And you're like, whoa! You guys are praying over it? Lord, what's going to hit her in the heart? Or what is she like? Talk to me. This is why we're here. We're here to help you with that. Because it, it, it cost us a lot to get to the altar. But Allison got there a virgin. I don't have that same testimony. But, you know, the Lord restored me. And now we have a glorious sex life. 
Hey, you guys should hear that. You guys should hear that. If you don't hear about that, then what's the point like of waiting? Like you're like, man, I might as well go ahead and take it for myself. I might as well go ahead and get it now in the moment of convenience. If there's nothing waiting for me any better than what I can go ahead and take in my own strength, then I would, why would I wait on the Lord's timing to have the healthy sexual connection that he's called me into with my spouse, with my one single spouse for the rest of my life? Why would I wait when I could go ahead and take it now for myself? You guys need to hear how glorious, how fulfilling, how incredible you guys are feeling this right now. You're like, mm, mm, mm. How wonderful a healthy sexual connection can be within the context of covenant. You need to know that because here's the thing. If you wait, I promise you this, it's going to be so glorious. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to be so fulfilling. Now, you will need help, but it will be glorious and will be fulfilling. If you don't, you're going to have to go back and repair a bunch of damage that you've done previous to marriage so that you can have that after you're married. So the work is going to be done one way or the other. I'm getting off topic here. But this is part of why we came. And this is the questions that we get asked every time we do come. It's like, hey, talk to us about this. And this is very important because I don't know if you guys have recognized this recently, but there are so many people in our line of work giving ourselves completely to Jesus, doing missions and ministry, that their marriages don't make it, that their kids don't make it, that they burn out, they retire and quit because of this not working in their lives. So we want to be, be a testimony to the world about what's possible and the connection and the joy that you can have actually within the context of marriage. Don't we, my love? Awesome. So, let's see, what time is it? 10.38? <laughs> Will's down in Kona, bro. Will's down. Yeah, let's, let's go on a little bit longer about that surrender thing. Is that cool? Because listen... This, the surrender, it makes its way into the marriage component so much. Uh, and I think you have a lot of revelation on this, right? Like where you talk about how, uh, you know, just what I was mentioning there, that so many people get impatient, so they take it for themselves because they don't, they don't actually see the vision of the promised land that gives them a purpose in their patience, right? And, uh, but the surrendered life will carry you into that place. It's your yes it's your yes that is the variable. Now, the truth is, none of you got saved because you figured God out. You didn't. None of you did. I didn't. You didn't. Nobody that has ever been saved got saved as a result of studying about God enough to figure God out enough to intellectually consent to becoming a spirit-filled believer. It's, just, it's not possible. It's not possible. This is a walk that we take by faith and not by sight. This is not just conscious decisions that we make to connect ourselves to a specific religion. 
This is a supernatural spiritual regeneration that gives us a completely new, free, joyful, blissful, abundant life in Jesus Christ. That does not come as a result of doing any work of your own, but it comes as a result of complete surrender to the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. This is how you got saved. Now, I know this sounds like a little bit of classic theology, and you're thinking, man, I've heard this before. It's not really a big deal. But somewhere along the way, whether we're living for God three weeks, three months, three years, we stop living as though we were saved by surrendering to grace and start living as though we are saved by our own good works, uh, our works of justice, our acts of righteousness, or whatever it is that we feel that we've learned about Jesus that is sustaining our spiritual walk and connection to the faith. So when, when I got saved in that drug-infested apartment, here's how I know that I got saved. I yielded, I surrendered, I gave up the ghost, as Jesus said on the cross. I died to myself so that Christ might live in me. Is that how you got saved? Eventually you said, Lord, I'm tired of trying to figure out how to live this life on my own. Is that how you got saved? Lord, I'm tired of trying to figure it out. Lord, I'm exhausted. I've been trying to experience goodness Every single way I know how, but I surrender and I give up to your love. Come and get me. Is that how you got saved? All of us got saved as the result of the unrelenting intimacy of Jesus Christ that eventually wrestled you to the ground and smothered you with enough kisses that you said, I give up. That's how we all got saved. But a little bit after we're saved, and it's different for everybody, that little switch that we flipped on in our spirit, we click off. And instead of being surrendered, we fill that void with revelatory Facebook post. You guys get what I'm saying? I do devotionals, so I'll have something to post online to impress my friends that my spirituality is active. When the truth is, on the inside, I'm dead. The surrender switch is off. Right? It's like it's turned off. How many of you guys know that your high water mark in God is not supposed to be the first three months after you get saved? That it's supposed to keep getting better and keep getting better and keep getting better. But it's so common for us to turn the surrender switch on. And we live in an illusion, uh, turn the surrender switch off. But we live with an illusion that it's on and we try to convince other people that, man, we're really fired up for Jesus. We're really going after God. We're really doing everything. But if that was true, we'd have more impact. Let me ask you this question. What would your life be like if you stopped saying no to God? Like, honestly, I mean, really, do some serious investigation. Like, the same state in which you are saved is the same state in which you are called to live. Complete surrender. The way in which you got saved was abandoned surrender. You said, I give up. I raise the white flag. Come and get me, Lord. That is the way that we are called to live this Christian life. Completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. Never saying no. Never resisting his love. Allowing him to pick us up like a paintbrush and paint a masterpiece through our lives. 
When I first got saved, I adopted this personal catchphrase, which was this, I intend to find out what God might do with one life that's completely laid down to him. Like, what would a life look like that could no longer say no to the Lord? Think of the crazy mess that you would get into on a daily basis. Think about the adventure that you would go on with the Holy Spirit. You know how many times I meet with Christians over coffee and they tell me how bored they are? I say, dude, you're not bored. You're just disobedient. <laughs> not bored. It's completely disobedient because it's a guarantee that on the other side of your obedience is true adventure. Jesus has called us, has saved us into an abundant life of adventure. And that door that swings open is, is mounted upon that tiny hinge of yes. If you want to have a great life, it'll be found on the other side of your yes. If you want to have an insane story, a crazy testimony, you want to see awe-inspiring breakthrough and miracles of biblical proportion, that is going to come on the other side of your yes. Complete surrender, completely given over to the Lord. So how about I read a scripture because we haven't read one yet. Is that cool? What time is it? We're okay. You guys want to do like a few like, uh, like question and response at the end? It'll be helpful for us if you do it. Just give me a yes. Yes, Lord. We're in for Q&A. Okay. This is why it'll be helpful because it'll give us. See, we, we didn't come here with like prepackaged messages for you guys. Okay. Yeah, we have some. We can. But I, I know you guys didn't come all the way to Hawaii for prepackaged messages like you came here for life-giving words from the real Jesus and so the reason why we love to do a little bit of question response is because we want to hear what's burning on your hearts what you guys actually are expecting uh, from the Lord and then we want to partner with the Holy Spirit to go after that with you look guys we don't want to just preach to you we don't want to just teach you lessons. Like, we want to lock arms with you in the spirit and go after your purpose with you as a family. You guys with that? Guys, I'm telling you, man, history is supposed to be different because you are alive. Anything less than world change is compromise. Like just write that right there in the leaf of your Bible, man. Like, anything less than world change is compromise. In the leaf of my Bible, it says, seek God. The rest will take care of itself. Seek God. The rest will take care of itself. Keep that surrender switch on. In my Bible, it just says our service times. That's all. Okay. I said in my Bible, all it says is our service times. I'm a, anybody else administrative in the room? Uh huh. Oh, four of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we need it. We need administrative people to get the work of the gospel out. That's a big deal. I've learned to become more administrative because um, I'm married to a visionary, and so it's good. If you're like super administrative and you have a heart to partner with a big vision. Like, just find the biggest visionary thinker that you're like, your idea is so freaking wild, but I'm down for it. And then just 
just help them get off the ground um, because this is like a random nugget because of the service times in my Bible. But most visionary, <laughs> most visionaries, and that seems like a lot of you in the room, like you're dreamers, you're like vision centric, you're terrible at strategy and actually like getting things off the ground, right? You have an idea and you're like, I have no idea how to get off the ground. Please find some admins and don't get mad at them when they say, hey, like that's not going to, we got to do these steps first before we can hit the big vision. Uh, they're there to actually see it through to the finish line. Um, but yeah, it seems like a lot of you are visionaries in the room, and I, I think schools like this attract big vision, and sometimes it's like you got to find your people and surround yourself with some admins. Yes, Lord, that's how I am. We need you administrative people. Me either. No, we have a ton of people on our team at, at home that are way better than us in every area. My hiring strategy is this. A, hire people who are better than me. B, hire women. <laughs> so you guys laugh about that, but I'm like, dude, the ladies, man, you guys just kick our butts. It's like 90% of missionaries around the world are women, dudes. We got to step it up, y'all. You guys, you guys know that? Like, they, it's like we need some men, yes. not boys. Listen. Let's go. Listen. We're having the marriage talk too, man. We don't need boys. That's yeah. Let's talk about that, huh? Some men, some grown men, grown women too, grown women too. But we need some grown men that are going to be honest with their feelings. Hey. Okay, hey, this is what I feel like. This is the scripture I want to. Yeah, we'll, we can take notes. We can do that. I'll give you guys a time. I'll talk to you about all the stuff not to do and a lot of the places where God's healed my heart and called me out on my immaturity. Yep. Can't make a marriage being a boy. That's the truth. Can't make a marriage being selfish. Can't be a father being selfish. Now, you can be a baby's daddy, but you cannot be a, a dad. Okay, so go ahead. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. I'm actually going to read this real quick because <coughs> we're going to just do some, like, life stuff as far as, like, some life messages for me, life messages for us. And I just felt like this would be a good way to kick off. Are you okay with this, my love? So it's, you know, Matthew 4. Verse 18 through 22, uh, we've been talking a little bit about surrender, and I just want to read these four verses of Scripture uh, because I think it'll set a pace for us. And for whatever reason, like I was going to read something completely different, but I was just praying about it right there, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to read from Matthew 4. So uh, I just want to read Matthew 4, verse 18 through 22. We're talking about the calling of God upon your life. And so we're going to examine the story where Jesus calls his disciples, people just like you and I, and the prerequisite to being completely used by God for his goodness. 
which is surrender, and we'll see that in verse 22. So verse 18 says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, one of the things I want you to notice right here in verse 18 is that Peter and Andrew were going about their routine business. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that God is so faithful to encounter us in the midst of our mundane. Let me tell you guys this. God wants to speak to you. He wants to come to you. He wants to encounter you in the midst of your mundane, in the midst of the monotony, in the midst of your routine, in the midst of your chores, in the midst of the things that you've been assigned to do on this base that you think are unimportant and simply routine. God wants to encounter you in the midst of that because Simon, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they were not expecting an encounter from the Lord when Jesus walked the shoreline and called him to himself. I'm going to tell you guys, God wants to encounter you most when you think it's least. Because he wants to take a walk with you, man. He doesn't want to just have moments with you in the midst of Christian concerts. He wants to be so intimate with you that he lavishes you with his, lavishes you with his love while you're washing dishes. That's the truth, man. See, a lot of people look at the Christian life and encounters with the Lord, and, and you look at, like, you know, um, I hope I, I say this right. I, it's something I remember Bill saying. He was saying something about, uh, you know, we got the cake and the icing on the cake. And we often look at the icing on the cake as, uh, you know, the big meetings and the big encounters. We're like, man, that's the icing on the cake. And the routine is the cake. But truthfully, the big meetings are the cake. The icing on the cake, the good stuff, is what happens in the moments. What happens in the day-to-day? What happens in the routine? What happens when you're doing landscape duty? What happens when you're washing dishes? What happens when you're doing laundry? Are you having intimate times and moments with Jesus and those little intricate moments? See, anybody can get up in front of everybody else and shout and holler and dance and twist and, hey, whoa, Shaba. I'm from Iris, so we say Shaba. And, you know, anybody can do that. But the goodness, man, the icing on the cake is those intimate moments when no one else is around and the tenderness of the Holy Spirit just whispers into your ear and tells you the truth about yourself. Oh, you are, you're a well-loved son or daughter. You are so cherished. Wow, you're going to shake the nations. Man, can I talk to you about your dreams for a minute? Can I talk to you about your family for a minute? Can I talk about, to you about those things that, you know, you're not hearing teachings on right now, but you've been praying about, like, God wants to encounter you in the midst of your mundane. If you believe that, say amen. amen. That's verse 18. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want you to notice the next word here in my Bible. It's the ESV, verse 20. It says, immediately. So this is how we respond to the voice of the Lord and the commandments of God over our lives. Everybody say, immediately. immediately. Hey, listen, slow obedience is no obedience. Slow obedience is no obedience. Hey, listen, if the joy levels are low, the obedience is slow. Can you write it down, man? If your joy levels are low, your obedience is slow. You know, I mean, think, I, I know I need to come out with a mixtape, man. You know, like, 
Honestly, like think about it whenever people, people are being called by Jesus. I mean, this is the Son of God, the Messiah, the great worker of miracles, the creator of it all, the Alpha and the Omega, the author and the finisher. I mean, this guy is amazing. Hey, follow me. Hey, man, let me go bury my dad first. Slow obedience. Hey, man, let me go sell my stuff first. Slow obedience. They missed their purpose, not because they intended to disobey, but because they obeyed too slowly. We got to write that down. That was good. Right? Holy Spirit said that. Like, they missed their purpose, not because they intended to disobey, but because they were slow to obey. Being a world changer is all about seizing divine moments. And that happens as a result of immediately obeying. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in their boats with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and verse 22 says, immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed wow. him. I love that word immediately. You know who also loves that word immediately? Mark. If you ever read the gospel of Mark, you'll see Mark just says immediately all the time. And I like that because he, I mean, like he says immediately like millennials say literally. It's like constant. You know what I'm saying? It's just all the time. Immediately. But what I want to point out is what Jesus said to his disciples when he called them. And this is what I want to sort of extend and call us back to if we've at all wavered from it, which is this, follow me. Everybody say, follow me. Follow and me. I will make you. Everybody say, and I will make you. And I will make you. Fishers of men. And everybody say, So I want you to examine here just for a moment the three components of your calling. The three components of your calling. I want you to examine this. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this is for every single person that has been called by Christ. There is not one person that is exempt of this calling. Whenever you were out on the boat in the midst of your routine, whatever you thought was your dream, and Jesus walked the shoreline of your life and then spoke into your heart and called you into a lifestyle of walking with him. He extended the exact invitation to you, which was number one, which was follow me. Everybody say intimacy. Because that's what it means to follow me. When Jesus said follow me, he did not say follow Christianity. When Jesus said follow me, he did not say follow the famous preacher you follow on Instagram. When Jesus said, follow me, he did not say, follow this certain number of podcasts. When Jesus said, follow me, he really meant himself. He meant the person of Jesus. He didn't mean a select set of teachings. He meant to have intimacy with God directly. And this is beautiful, that he would come to us, that God would come to us in the person of Jesus, not that we would have to somehow get to him through another person that's been anointed by God to come to him on our behalf. 
But so many New Testament Christians are still going through the Old Testament model. And they are outsourcing their responsibility to be intimate with God to their leadership. You guys get what I'm saying here? You remember whenever God called Israel up on the mountain? He says, come up to me. I want to encounter you all. And Israel's like, nah, we're good, bro. We're going to send Moses, the man of God, and then he can come back and tell us what you say. Christians are still doing that today. They're not going to God directly for themselves, but they're living life on the basis of third-party revelation. Am I giving you guys too much too quick? Is it good? Because I feel like this is important components, guys. This is very important components. If you're truly going to follow God, you cannot outsource your responsibility to encounter the Lord to your pastors. Hey, pastor, just go up and you come back and give us, you know, feed us. You know who gets fed? Infants. Toddlers. Immature, enable people get fed. But mature people, they... Go and they feed themselves. They eat for themselves, right? You mentioned milk. I love that. You know, I love, I love that whole illustration that Paul gives about milk and meat. You know what the difference in milk and meat is? It's not some heavy revy. It's not. The greatest revelation you're ever going to hear is this. Jesus Christ crucified. I didn't get too many amens on that, but that's the best revelation you're ever going to hear. The difference between milk and meat is the presence of conviction. Meat is when you can hear, be convicted, and then act on it. Not whenever you're like, oh, that's deep, bro. That's good. That's, man, I got that. I understood that. Super deep, man. The original language, the commentary, that's, that's not the depth. The depth is being convicted and being transformed because you took action on what God hit with your heart with. But see, we're, we're in a generation right now to where we think the goal of a sermon is to be convicted. Whoa, that was a good word, Pastor. I, mean, I felt so convicted. Well, that's not the goal. God's goal for you to hear a message is not so that you can feel convicted. It's so that you can be transformed. Wow, good word. That didn't hurt me. Okay, well, what are you doing about it? You guys with that? So follow me, intimacy. I'm going to move on this pretty quick, dude. I, I like to do this. I got a lot on this message here. Maybe we'll hit on it another time. But it, I think it's good. You think it's good? Intimacy, man, and we could spend all day on intimacy. Oh, man, that right there. We're going to do that forever, right? We're going to do that forever. We're going to have intimacy with God forever. We should be living now like we're going to live forever. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, it's just going to be a lot of intimacy, which is so good. And then he says, I will make you. Now, this is a part that we commonly miss, but what we're talking about here is discipleship. Everybody say discipleship. The first component of your calling is intimacy. That's the foundation. The next one is this, discipleship. And here's the good news. You don't have the supreme responsibility to transform yourself. Because Jesus takes supreme responsibility to transform you into the person he's ultimately called you to become. Isn't this the gospel? Isn't this good news that you don't have the responsibility of transforming yourself into the person you're called to become? Come on, if it was all on you, man, you'd be a mess. If it was all on you, you'd just be a hodgepodge of the latest and greatest information that you received. 
through various sources of literature. Like you are who you are as a result of Jesus taking you, putting you on the potter's wheel and shaping you and forming you into the person that you're eventually called to become. This is good news because we're living in a society that's like, buy this right now, three installments of $499 to go through this e-course and attend this seminar because we're going to give you the secrets of becoming the type of person that gets you popular and rich. Right? We're in this like very fascinated, you know, life coach culture where everybody's trying to get the latest and greatest secret that's going to give them the shortcut to becoming successful. But that doesn't come if you're not following Jesus in intimacy and it is Jesus is the one that transformed you into that. It's no shortcuts. Yeah. Hey, look, the anointing cost what it cost. Yes. When it comes to the anointing, there's no Black Friday sale. No discounts. There is no discounts on the anointing that you are hungry to steward. It's not going to be a rebate or return. You're going to have to walk it out with the Lord and he's going to have to make you into that person that carries what he's called you to carry. Now, I know so many people today get confused about their destiny. They say, man, my destiny is a nation. My destiny is a people group. My destiny is a net worth. My destiny is an income bracket. My destiny is, is a sphere of society. And I love all of that because all of that is true partially. But your destiny is not a place. Your destiny is a person and his name is Jesus. And so when you walk with Jesus, it guarantees that you will end up in the place that you're supposed to end up in. Now that might not be the place that you plan, but it will become the place of your purpose. You know why? Because Jesus will be there. And going anywhere without Jesus will not lead you into your purpose. But following him in intimacy guarantees that he will transform you into the person you need to become to carry what you need to carry to fulfill the purpose of God in your generation. Okay, so here's the last part. I will make you fishers of men. Everybody say evangelism. This is the three components to your calling, man. I feel like this goes over well at a YWAM base. Intimacy, discipleship, and evangelism. Intimacy, discipleship, and evangelism. If I could add a fourth component, and this would be me being taking a lot of uh, liberty with the text, it'd be this, have fun. Have some fun, man. You know, God is not in so great a need of you that you don't have time for a hobby. You know what I'm saying? He's not in so great a need of you that you don't have time for a hobby. Like, go learn how to surf or scuba dive or cook food or whatever you like to do. I don't care. Make clothes. Start a blog. Have some fun with your life, man. We've been saved into a joyful lifestyle. And if we're not having fun, then how effective will our evangelism be? Oh, nobody wants to be like me. I'm living for the Lord. <laughs> It's a grind, man. It's a grind. Just trying to live for God. Wow. Boring. Nobody wants to live like that. I can tell you this. Heaven ain't going to be boring. Heaven's going to be a festival. It's going to be a party. If you don't like having fun, 
you don't want to get saved. Right? So evangelism, and it's interesting to me that intimacy leads us to missions. Intimacy leads us to evangelism. Intimacy leads us to discipleship. Discipleship leads us to fishing for men. Now, I know that as Christians we say, man, I'm completely surrendered and I'm walking with the Lord. But if you're not fishing, it begs the question, are you really following? Because anybody that's following the Lord Jesus is going to catch the heart of the Lord Jesus. You're also going to catch the discipleship and the purpose of the Lord Jesus. And if we've established the fact that it's Jesus that transforms us, not us transforming ourselves, then it guarantees if we will continue to follow him, he will transform us into an evangelist. You guys getting what I'm saying here? Listen, I live in Nashville. Everybody's trying to hit it big there. It's, the, it's a city of dreams like Los Angeles. Films blowing up there. Country music's there. Production's there. Music business uh, study is there. Everybody's moving to Nashville to try to become famous. Listen, I'm telling you guys, we got so many people who come through our church with the sole purpose of just being famous. And I know you guys know that that is the diet of the day. Oh, it's real. And we've come into this place where we don't believe that you can accomplish anything without influence. But the truth is you don't need influence to have impact. I can tell the mixed reviews. You're not sure if that's true yet. Because it, it is true. But it's, it's so the doctrine of the day that we have honestly bought into a belief system, belief system BS, that, that you cannot have impact without influence right man listen I grew up I grew up in the church I watched my parents struggle with this idea of the prosperity gospel which basically said you are only as anointed as you are wealthy you are only as valuable as you are rich but our generation we don't struggle with the prosperity gospel we struggle with the popularity gospel which basically says you are only as valuable as you are influential and you are only as anointed as you are famous so if you're not famous and you don't have a K behind the follower count of your name on Instagram, you can forget about making a big splash for Jesus because you have not yet arrived. Dang, that's too real, isn't it? So I, I can tell you guys are like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't deal with that. Listen, here's how I know because I deal with that. You think I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you to tell you like, oh, man, like, let me just preach at you? I know because that stuff eats me up. Looking through Instagram like, man, when am I going to do it? When am I gonna, God, when? And these are things that the Lord's been speaking to me, which is why I'm sharing them with you because they cost me something to say. Yeah. Yep. So, so the last part, right, like evangelism. And every single one of us in here, you're called to be a missionary and you're called to be an evangelist. If you're in here today, don't think, man, no, no, that, that's for that person over there on the front row because he has the right personality type to become an evangelist. Well, when did God ever consult with your personality type before he called you into the ministry? Jesus does not discuss your disposition before he calls you into the ministry of an evangelist. He just gives you a new disposition. Jesus doesn't give you a personality test before he calls you to missions. He just gives you a new personality. 
Did we really think that Jesus was walking the shoreline of Galilee with a personality test in his rope? Like an Enneagram? Like, hey, feel this out, Peter. Just want to make sure you got the right personality to follow me because I'm going to call you to fish for men. So, hey, just fill this out real quick. You know, it's the Myers-Briggs, and I just want to make sure you've chosen all the right boxes because you've got to have the right personality to preach the gospel in public. You have to have the right disposition to do missions. And if you're not really demonstrative or, or extroverted or outgoing, well, you know, you should just, you know, commit yourself to staying on the boat and sowing an offering. Nope. Dude, they did not consult your disposition. He said, I'm just going to give you a new disposition. I'm just going to give you a new personality. And listen, I'm not going to call you to preach the gospel. I'm going to put the Holy Ghost in you, and I'm going to cause you to preach the gospel. I'm not going to call you to preach the gospel. I'm going to cause you to preach the gospel. It's going to be like fire shut up in your bones like the prophet Isaiah where it's going to bubble out and bubble over and you can't help it because you're so possessed that love has to be released to humanity because you recognize that you may not know how to fish for men. You definitely know that you're not called to warm the bench because Jesus called you out of the boat Right? He calls you out of the mundane. He calls you out of the routine. He calls you out. And he says, follow me. Because you're going to become an active participant in my plan to redeem all of humanity. You're going to be in intimacy with me. I'm going to shape you. And eventually you're going to fish for men. Which definitely means you're going to work. Because you guys know fishing is not an easy job. It's a dirty job. You work all night sometime without a catch. You get your hands dirty. You get sweaty. It is difficult. It is hard. Come on. You ever watch TLC? They said the most dangerous job in the world is to be a crab fisherman. Deadliest catch. You could call, you could call that about yourself as being fishermen of men. It's the deadliest catch. People think signing up for this is easy. The most dangerous job in the world is not to be an Alaskan crab fisherman. The most dangerous job in the world is to be an apostle. That's the most dangerous job in the world. Sign up for that. See how fun your life gets. Sign up for that. See how risky your life gets. Sign up for that, but see how fruitful your life gets. See how abundant your life gets. And I'm not talking about in the natural for everybody to see. I'm talking about in the spirit where God is feeding your spirit with his goodness and with his grace, with his companionship and his voice, with intimacy and with encounter. Because until you've come to the place to where intimacy is the reward, you're not ready to do missions. Because you ain't getting paid in honorariums. I promise you this. You preach 100,000 messages in your whole life, it'll equal out to be like five bucks a message. Right? You ain't getting paid in that. You're getting paid in love. In full, baby. Love in full. And that's where you got to come to, to where you're getting paid in love. You're not getting paid by your donors. You're getting paid in love. That's the payment we get. That's what we go after. That's what we're satisfied with. That's what we're fulfilled by is, is more love. Is more love, more Jesus, more the beauty of Jesus, more the face of Jesus, more the heart of Jesus. And if you get so obsessed with that, I can promise you this, you will not compete for position. You will not care who tells you to stay in your lane. You will simply respond to the invitation by immediately dropping your nets, recognizing, you know, they were fishermen, they were fishing nets, but I like to call them their safety nets. Their backup plan, their plan B in case fire and frigates doesn't work out. Yeah. Their backup plan in case they go back home. Yeah. Yeah. 
Has this been challenging enough for the first day? Awesome, man. Because you're all called to it, and we believe in you guys, which is why we come out here, to be honest with you. Because we believe in you guys, man. I believe in the seed that God is depositing into your souls while you're here on this DTS, because I promise you, the encounters that you have here, you're going to remember for the rest of your life. You're going to remember for the rest of your life. And, and if you've been here, you know, I know you, like four weeks, if this is the fifth week of the school or something like that, it's the fifth week of the school, the number of grace, come on, baby. Sunday was 5-5, five, five, which kicked off the week. It's the, fifth week of the, it's the fifth week of the school, the fifth month of the year, and the week started on the fifth day of the month. Look at God. Triple grace, dude. This week is going to be good, dude. It's already good, yes. Come on, Lord. Okay, so I'm drinking all the water. I'm going to pass it. I'm going to pass the mic to my wife, but listen, question and response? Yeah, it's fine. We'll do that. Yeah. Let's kick off some Q&A. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, we've got 15, 20 minutes. I don't know what our time frame looks like that good. Um, but yeah, we just want to, uh, we, we're willing to answer any questions in regards to what we've shared today or just whatever you're thinking or feeling, um, we'll do our best to answer. If we don't have the answer, we'll just say we don't have the answer. Um, and then it will kind of, it'll help us shape kind of where, where we're headed throughout maybe the rest of this week. And we'll make a uh, question and answer time available throughout most of our sessions. We really feel like um, during these times, some people get the most out of these times because they just, they have something burning on their heart. And we might, we might talk to you know, the whole room and 42 people might get something out of it. And eight people are like, I have this one burning thing. So we really honor this time. So whenever somebody is asking a question, just know it takes courage. Stand up and ask and just make it a safe space uh, for your friends, no matter what they ask. Okay. Awesome. Let's go. I love that. It's a great question. Um, I don't know. I, I think we're discovering that every day. One of the things that we feel like is a key component to surrender is just s a simple obedience. Um, surrender can look the same for, I have two kids and, I, you know, we pass our church as well, but I get the privilege of being home with our kiddos a lot throughout the week. And for me, that's obedience and that's my life surrendered to Jesus. Um, I recognize that Surrender looks different in the lifestyle of everybody around me, but it looks always like obedience. Every single time across the board, it's what is God's, I ask my friends this simple question, what is God saying and what are you doing about it? Um, and, and that looks, that for me is usually a pretty good picture of what surrender, at least for me, looks like. I don't know if you have. Um, I think what Allison shared is, Bro, to the T, because I think it's so unique for every person. Like, if you really, okay, that way. All right, my bad, bro. Um, that's very good. I, I think it looks so unique for every single person, and I think it's important that we note that because you can't define what surrender looks like for you through the lens of what it looks like for somebody else. Because here's the deal. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. 
We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful to what God has asked us to do. And I actually heard Andy say this one time, which I thought was so good. He, he shared it in Nashville at our missions conference. And he said, you know, I refuse to agree with any definition of being radical that cannot include my wife's day-to-day experience. You know, of like taking care of the kids, cooking and cleaning, doing CrossFit. Because we all know Holly is jacked, you know. But, like, it's what it looks like for you. It's, it's what obedience looks like for you. It's what faithfulness looks like for you. And I think the barometer of living a surrendered life is a lifestyle of intimacy and a lifestyle of response to God. Now, I also want to throw this in there just super quick. I think that a lot of people in our generation use God said as an excuse to do what they want rather than what God wants. So when it comes to intimacy, we have to discern the difference between us responding to God and God responding to us. Okay? So obedience is when I respond to God, not when God responds to me. Okay, let me make this a little bit more practical because it may seem like I'm being too elusive. Let's, real-time scenario. God speaks to me and says, go do this. I want you to do this. I want you to move there. I want you to start that ministry. I want you to preach to that person. I want you to go to school there. I want you to go to university. I want you, it's like a word from the Lord that we receive and then we receive the invitation to respond, to take action on the word. Now, for a lot of folks, and we pastor people like this, which is why we have this experience, we hear them say, God said, but it's God responding to them, not them responding to God. Meaning, they, con- they continually bring things up before the Lord that God has not brought up himself, and they ask for permission to do them. God, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? And they completely remove themselves from purpose so long that them doing what they want to do is eventually their best case scenario and God blesses it because he loves them and he wants to protect them and he wants to care for them. But the truth is they are compromising on their ultimate purpose because they're never actually listening to what God says and doing that. They're simply forcing God to listen to what they say and demanding that he bless it. Does this make sense? I'm working this out right now, okay? I'm processing this because this is a recent revelation. But I'm noticing that so many people will sit down with me and they'll say, you know, I'm taking a break from church. Really? Yeah, God told me to. I'm like, well, it doesn't really sound like the Lord. However, talk to me about how you arrived at that conclusion. And I think that there is a big difference in us continually bringing something up before God and then the Lord saying, you know, it's not my perfect will, but it's my permissible will. You guys, are you guys get what I'm saying? Is this, is this like, I'm processing, so it may sound too deep. But like, I, there's a difference in the perfect will of God and the permissible will of God. And I think the difference is the perfect will is you responding to him. The permissible is God responding to you. Does that make sense? Leaders, I'm checking with y'all. Does that make sense? Okay. I, I, need, to, I need to flesh that out. I like that. I think it's good. The Lord's on that, I think. Did that make sense to you guys? Um, 
What does a multi-generational family on mission look like for you? I don't know how you're unboxing this whole week, but how do you use the home to catalyze on intimacy with Jesus and discipleship and evangelism? Like you're saying, you're at the home a lot and, and, and you're preaching or, or vice versa. How do you guys capitalize on that? This is my like bread and butter right here. This is, this is everything. So this last year, um, Lyle and I, we're moving in with my parents. So we like decided to... This is, or yeah, our parents moved in with us. It's a very interesting situation, but, but good, really good. We are very close with my, with my parents um, and with my family. It's a very unique, strange thing uh, for some of my friends watching us because this is like our culture. Uh, I know some of you aren't American, but, or Western, maybe some of you are from out of the States, um, so your culture is different. But in America, everything is very compartmentalized, right? When you turn 18, you get kicked out of the nest and you're expected to like, fly and like somehow survive at life and you're thrown into university and you're thrown into this system of being in this way of thought and one of the things that Lyle and I are really passionate about are kind of breaking down that idea because we actually don't think that that's the the most beneficial picture for family and, and raising a family um, I think that the context in which Jesus came through like Jewish culture and they're very they're very uh, relational connected interconnected, multi-generational kind of family dynamic. Um, and so we're kind of like on the front edge of figuring out kind of what that looks like. We're, it, we're not trying to be weird and like build a commune in Nashville. That just wouldn't work. People kind of like look at us a little bit, but kind of trying to. Um, but yeah, for us, it's just, it's everyday uh, life and living. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think the home is the easiest place to teach about ministry in the presence of God because it's so constant and it's so every day um, that it's very easy to disciple through the home. Um, one of the things that I get completely gutted by watching is seeing my, my mom friends feel like they're second class because they're not doing something outside of the home to disciple people aside from their kids. Um, and I feel like the most blessed person on the planet that I have two disciples that have to listen to me right now. They're two and they're four and they like, they listen to me and I know there's going to come a day where they're like wanting to make decisions on their own and do their own thing. And I'm, I'm learning that the more conversation and the tighter the boundaries that when they're little and the more conversations we have with them about the presence of God and we take them to church you know, like we get them in the presence of God around other young people, um, around other moms and dads. They learn to hear no from other people, the whole community dynamic. But as, they're, as I have tighter parameters and conversations when they're little, then I'll be able to let go as they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And instead of kicking them out of the nest when they're 18, they'll just, I don't know, I don't know, they're not 18 yet. But when they're 18, 20, 24, 25, whenever they decide to leave, they're set up for success, knowing that they don't actually have to do things on their own. See, that's the that's the whole point of family, and and the whole point of of reintegrating a family dynamic that's not just so compartmentalized. It's bringing it back around the table, bringing it back around uh, connection, because every, I mean, I think most of us who have lived wild lives will attribute it to disconnection, whether that's with our families, with our parents, with 
uh, people in our, our friendship circles, hurt, pain in, in regards to relationship. And so the home is the place to safeguard from that. And with that, if you don't have healthy moms and dads, the local church is so helpful for that because inside the context of that family, you can get your those needs met. Um, but we're on that journey. Like we made a huge point this year. It was very uncomfortable, not because we don't love my parents, but because Lyle and I are, are, are pretty introverted and our home is our safe space. Um, but we were like, if we're going to talk about family, we have to do it. We have to do the real deal. So we kind of like moved heaven and earth to, to do it and see what it looks like to have my parents influencing my kids and see all of those different dynamics. Um, and after the first week, we're like, this is the most genius idea that's ever happened. I don't know why we're working so hard to like convince ourselves that this is going to be tough, but it ended up being something so beautiful. But yeah, I mean, most, most healthy kingdom conversation happens around our dinner table. We teach our kids how to pray there at bed we talk about the bible and we teach them how to pray um so yeah i think that's the the best context for that kind of conversation just if you talk about it when they're young and when you're you're there is that intergenerational dynamic at play when the, your kids are young and when your family's young then there's a lot of fruit Something that you just alluded to, which I think is so like something God's spoken to our heart, is that, you know, we're local church pastors, so we love the local church, right? And one of the things that we say about the local church is that the local church is the greatest incubator of personal destiny that exists on planet Earth. Here's why I believe that. Because nobody can crucify themselves. Think about it. You could drill the nail, like, through one hand. You could drill the nail through both feet. But then I would need you to take the hammer from me and drill the third nail into my other hand. Nobody can crucify themselves. So community is required for you to stay dead to yourself and alive to Christ. It's so easy to live independent in isolation... And to do your will versus the will of God lived out through the family within the context of the local church. And when I say local church, guys, I'm not just talking about legacy. What we're doing today is local church, all right? We're, we're, an, we're a localized body of Christ coming together to offend each other enough to where we're forced to learn to forgive. Like, if you live life isolated, you never learn how to forgive which is the paramount moment of our faith, which is Christ suffering for all of humanity on the cross and forgiving the people persecuting him. That is what you're learning in this DTS. You're learning how to forgive one another. You're learning how to stay on the cross in the context of community. And you're also becoming the person God's called you to become in an incubator where, where there's enough tension to create real growth, right? And so if the local church or the community that we call the church is the greatest incubator of personal destiny, I believe that the home, the family, is the greatest incubator of personal character that exists on planet Earth. Like, it's amazing that we can flow in the power of the gifts of the Spirit. But how many of you guys know, if we flow in the gifts of the Spirit but we don't flow in the fruit of the Spirit, then, then Paul says we're an annoying sound. That means what we preach 
is like nails on a chalkboard. Because people are like, wow, okay, I see you operating in supernatural power. But every time I go to have a conversation with you, you're a jerk. You're acting too cool for school. And like you can't, you know, you can't come down off your high horse to have a conversation with me because you're too busy. Come on, man. We need to like leg drop that celebrity version of Christianity. I mean, just drop kick it right in the teeth. You know, like we really do. And so with the family, and I know we're taking some long time on the, on the responses, but I feel like we're unpacking it and it's going well. So like, you know, I, I will say this, like family, I, I got two more points to this response. I, got a lo- I had a long time to formulate it while she was sharing hers. So, um, not that I wasn't listening, my love, but you gave me a lot of starters. Um, the other thing is this, is that family is not an acceptable casualty on the road to success. Family is not an acceptable sacrifice on the road to your greatness. Because the light that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. Like, if you're a revivalist in the nations, but you can't take care of your kids, well, your ministry, the days of your ministry is numbered. It's true. Because even Paul wrote about it to the early church. He said, dude, if you can't take care of your own house, what makes you think you can take care of God's house? One of the qualifications for an elder, which is a leader, which is a revivalist, which is a disciple that makes other disciples, is that they have their own personal affairs and their own personal family in order. And God set it up that way because he's like, dude, if you can't get the family in order, then what revelation are you really going to carry with the family of God? Because you'll exalt revelation over connection. You'll exalt testimonies over relationship. You'll exalt truth over, over uh, reconciliation. And so you'll become a preacher that's always right but has no friends. And I'm going to tell you, there's more out there than you think. A, a, they have a great deal of depth of revelation and no, no depth of, of relationship yeah. with other people. And so over time, what it leads to is arrogance. Because they're not connected with enough people to offend them enough to learn how to forgive. They're the epicenter of their own world, and as a result, they become their own God. In fact, God starts to take on their image more than they start to take on the image of God. See, community humbles. Encounters humble. See, when a Christian becomes arrogant, what they're revealing is that it's actually been a while since their last encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Right? When, when a Christian becomes arrogant, they're revealing that it's been a while since their last encounter or that it's been a while since they practiced forgiveness. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll say Please. to that, the, the family, the number one thing that I've learned over the last 10 years of my life is that the, 
the purpose of family is also for learning forgiveness. Um, our generation, is, the, the war on family is no joke. I mean, all of you know that. I'm sure some of you come from super broken households, not because I'm like looking at your face and I'm like, oh, wow, you look like you're from. It's just statistically, we have broken homes and there's just been this onslaught of this war on family, which is why our generation, um, and Lala and I talk about this a lot, has settled for this idea of justice as being an appropriate response to uh, inequality and justice as a um, as a way to solve the problems on planet Earth, but justice is not the way to solve the problems. It's forgiveness. We have to have a revolution of family so that we can have a revolution of forgiveness, and the church has to become that for so many people. Um, and that communities like this have to become that to teach us how to forgive. We don't need to get even. We don't need justice. We need forgiveness. Um, and so that's one of the things that family is there for, but that's why there's been so much tension um, in this last season, uh, last 15, 20 years uh, in our nation, across the nations, because there's actually been a war on family, and it floods through the generation in a way that the only way we know how to respond to hard stuff is to get even, or hard stuff is we, it has to be fair, um, or punishment, or whatever. But you learn forgiveness in the home, and that's, that's a big deal. Because forgiveness allows us to stay connected, whereas punishment, it's only dealing with the behavior, so it never restores the relationship, right? So the last thing I want to say about that is this, is, is um, the element of pace. This is to your question, brother. The element of pace, okay? So this may seem a little bit random at first glance, but when you're doing ministry in the context of a cross-generational environment, the slowest person in the family determines the pace of the family. Okay? So think about going to Disney World with toddlers. I'm going to tell you this. You ain't going to get there on your timetable. What I can guarantee is you're going to get there when the two-year-old makes space for you to get there. And if you don't think that this is true, you obviously have never traveled with toddlers because they're going to make messes they're going to destroy the car they're going to poop in their pants and you're going to have to stop to clean it up but the reason why family often becomes an acceptable casualty on the road to success is that when the toddlers slow us down enough times in the pursuit of our promised land we kick them out of the van when the elders slow us down because they need some assistance, they need some help, they need some connection, they need some love. When they slow us down enough times, we demand that they get out of the vehicle so that we can get to the promised land quicker. Which is one of the reasons we have not been successful at multi-generational ministry because we've demanded that everybody, regardless of their age, move at the exact same pace. But not everybody can move at the same pace. In your youth, you move quicker. You get older, you get stronger, you move faster. You get older, you get older, you move slower. When you're born, you move slower, right? We see this in the natural, but truly, it is a good picture of what's happening in the spiritual. None of us are the same spiritual age. 
We've been walking with the Lord for varying seasons and years. Therefore, a different grace is required for each and every individual. Now, we're all in the same van and we're all going to the same promised land. We're all going to the same Disney world. But if we kick you out of the tent every time that you make a mess, we may get to the promised land. We'll just get there by ourselves. Right? You know the African proverb, if you want to get there fast, go alone. Right? If you want to, what, what, how does it go? I'm screwing it up. Go alone. Far, go together. That's it. That's on the airport in Joburg. That's how I remember it. So I think pace, my brother, is an underrated element of multi-generational ministry. Because what happens is so many churches, so many communities, so many organizations, when people don't move as fast as they want to go, as the leadership wants to go, they alienate and they kick people out. Which makes it very difficult. If, if the promise is more important than the people, it's a guarantee you'll never do multi-generational ministry. It's a guarantee because you'll go slower and we don't live in a cultural climate that appreciates slow. We're a microwave generation. We want to order things fast. I want a number two of cheese, right? We don't like to sit down and we don't like to move slow. There's things going on. Time is money. So multi-generational ministry is going to require patience and it's also going to require a pace that is absolutely uncomfortable because in your prime you'll have to wait on people that need your help but that's where you'll get to decide if whether or not your success and your position is more important than the people God has connected you to Let's wow. do it. Yeah, let's do one more, and then we'll be sure to start off tomorrow with Q and A. We'll start sure. it tomorrow. As you guys can tell, we like to do really long responses. <laughs> well, Is it okay? Has. No, it's fine. We're good. Guys, you're so good. <laughs> I had so many questions. My main question was like, uh, as a marriage, uh, what's been your biggest struggle, and how have you overcome it? But actually, also your your last response responded a lot of that. Yeah. But I was thinking that most of the people in this room are singles. Yep. And one of the questions that they have asked us the most was, uh, they grow up in church and they grow up uh, really taking the whole guard your heart like, like a big deal. So a lot of women and men, they grow and they keep guarding their hearts for the right one, for the perfect one. And it becomes a little prideful and a little like fear-based. The whole, like, I don't want to open up and I don't want to start a relationship. Why? Because if he's not the one that I'm going to marry, then no. And, and they have these fears. So how did you guys overcome the fear with your different backgrounds? And also, what would you tell everybody about it? Oh, it's a good, uh, it's a good, good question. Here, so I made this Instagram post that... That's a tool, man. Hey, dude, if the Apostle Paul was walking the earth today, here's what I can guarantee. Homie would be going live on IG all the time, man. Um, to answer your question, let me see. It'll come up here in just a moment. 
If it doesn't, that's fine. We can just respond. But I wrote, I actually wrote a little, like a little blurb. It's actually quite a long one um, about the exact question that you asked, which is, how do I know that somebody is the one or when do I need to stop guarding my heart uh, to let somebody in um, the whole process? So here's the caption. Is it okay if I read it? How do you know that Allison Phillips was the one when I married her? The theology of the one has mystified marriage so much that unless you meet a perfect human, have a dream, get a prophetic word, the stars align, and you see a unicorn, then you're imprisoned to singleness forever. Dating like this removes most all personal responsibility and keeps people single while their hearts burn for companionship all in the name of waiting on God. Did God speak to me about my wife? Yes, of course. But he didn't part the clouds and force me to fall in love with her. He simply gave me the opportunity to pursue her. Dating and marriage is all about making powerful decisions to love another imperfect person, seeking God together and entering into conflict humbly and in love. I never heard God say that Allie was the one. I heard God say that she was his best for me in the season of my life that we were married. For those of you outsourcing all responsibility to God to find you a mate, stop looking for the one and start looking for someone that turns you into a superhero. That the healthiest version of you can choose. Someone that's kind to the real you. Chooses you and your flaws and somebody that you want to romance sexually within the context of covenant. God is not going to do the work for you. So speak up, put yourself out there and go for it again. So I think the whole theology of the one... And I don't mean to offend anybody, is crap. Personally, that's just my own personal opinion, okay? So mark it up as an opinion. It's just an opinion. It's not God's opinion, okay? I just feel like it's our opinion. I think that the one actually gets in the way of a lot of relational opportunities for you to grow into the person that you need to be to have a healthy marriage. So I actually encourage people in our environment to date. This is not the same kind of environment, but. <laughs> it's not fire and fragrance. You're not allowed yet. You're not allowed not yet. yet. Not You're yet. not allowed yet. Okay. You're not allowed yet. But when you are allowed, I encourage you, let the walls down and go out to a coffee with somebody. Even if you don't have a dream about them, even if you haven't been fantasizing about them for six months, even if you haven't been thinking about what your kids would look like and you've already put them into a facial recognition generator on Facebook and like, look, we get so like, fantasy is what people want, reality is what people need, all right? Like people don't want to actually get married to a person. They want to get married to a fantasy, yeah, which, is a, which is, a, is a collection of all of the movies that they've seen throughout their lives. 
and the music that they listen to and the TV shows that they've watched. And they want this fantasy of a caricature of an individual that does not actually exist outside of your fantasy. That person is not real. And if you think that they are somehow going to be, you know, all of these different characters smashed into one anointed person, you're going to get very disappointed when they actually make a mistake and you learn that they're not actually Jesus. Because there's only one person that's ever going to be, that's going to fulfill your list. Right? I don't, I don't have any problems with a list. Make a list. Put all of the things down and then pray into it. But, if it, but your list is never going to be better than what God wants to give you. And, and if you find somebody that meets everything on your list, here's, here's the guarantee. After a season or two with them, you'll start adding to your list. Because you'll start thinking, man, you know, I, I, they were everything on that. But, man, now I kind of want to, like, I'd really like to have, because that what you, I didn't like when they did that. And you start picking them apart a little bit because they're a normal human like you, you know. And you start saying, man, Lord, I think, you know, I'd like to add this. I think I'd like to add this. And then pretty, pretty soon, the only person that can check all of those boxes is God. And if you're called to be celibate, well, that's cool. Just live the rest of your life single with your big old long list. It'd be awesome if you're called to it, if you don't want to have sex. Dude, I mean, let's be honest. Do you want to have sex? Then you're not called to, you're not called to singleness or celibacy. It's a very easy indicator. It's biblical, dude. Paul said it's better to marry than to burn. But some people prolong having the opportunity and the invitation to grow within the context of the, co the covenant of marriage because they're, they're doing exactly what you did such a great job articulating. Waiting on this perfect human before they open their heart even an inch just to go get a Starbucks with somebody. Like, it, you know... Allison had no interest in me the first time that we met. I was like the persistent widow. It's true. It's the truth. And, and you know, it, it wasn't that God said, this is the one. It, it, for some, we have friends, literally, that have had that experience. Like, they have had that experience. Like, the Lord said to them, that's your husband, that's your wife, and they got married. But I can tell you, a hundred thousand times more than people having that experience is God said that's my wife and they never get married and they go through a journey of discouragement and disappointment and they don't even date for years on end yeah. or they go through broken relationship after broken relationship or they compromise their their morality and their sexuality long before the appointed time because they're embittered and offended at God that they didn't get it right and they didn't test it out within the context of community and they didn't actually just go and have a few dates with somebody before they confessed their undying love and told them about how God had given them a dream and that they were supposed to be married to one another. Okay, you got to answer the rest because um, yeah, so, yeah, so for us, one of our, our biggest maybe points of conflict or moments where we ha tend to disconnect um, as you can tell, Lyle's probably a lot more, you're not necessarily more extroverted than I am. He's just a freaking go-getter, okay? Like, that's just how he's wired. 
Um, I, my pace is slower. When he said, like, the slowest family member determines the pace, my, my four-year-old and two-year-old are not our slowest family members. I am the slowest family member uh, by far. And so that actually, in the context of us dating, was, a l was very challenging. Um, one of the things that I like to remind single people is that it, you're not a failure if you don't, if you, the relationship doesn't end in marriage. Um, like, not all healthy relationships and successful relationships end in marriage. Some of them just Let's make say you. Again, say that again, because you can have a successful yes, relationship, relationship without, without getting married. Without ending in marriage. The definition of a successful relationship is, did it make you better? Did it grow you? Did you become more like Jesus? Did it cause you to surrender more in his presence, right? Like, that's. We get so scared, so filled with fear um, because we feel like if it doesn't end in marriage, then somehow we've failed ourselves or somehow we've like, you know, because guarding your heart's real. Guarding your heart happens all the way up until like your wedding day and you just like, and then even after you get married, you like slowly are opening your heart more and more and more. It's like a journey of a lifetime. Um, but yeah, you want to protect your, you want to protect your heart, but you don't want to hide your heart, right? You don't want to hide it from any opportunity for pain um, because pain is the thing that grows us and pain is the thing that helps us transform um, and so that's what that's what relationships are so great at but for me I I had gone through a season of my life where I felt like I had heard from the Lord that I was gonna marry somebody and I, I never really told them that and I but I went through a lot of uh, heartache because I was like did I miss God did I miss something and I had been taught like the whole idea of the one and I was like well if that was my one then dang, like, I, I should totally have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. Like, if I miss out on my one, like, what's the point of keeping myself for marriage? I'm not ever going to get married. Um, and that's why I think that, that that doctrine can, or that theology can be such crap because it can actually lead us in a direction away from our purpose. Um, but I hid my heart away a lot because I was super afraid of opening up and being hurt. And so that was our journey um, in our first year of relationship and then into our marriage was me learning how to actually uh, not so slowly open my heart up because I had guarded it. I literally barricaded my heart like six steel walls in. Um, and Lyle's so kind and he's so gentle. He never like busted through my walls. He's like, I'm just here on the other side of them whenever you want, whenever you want to meet me over here. Um, and that was super helpful, but that was actually a lot of the point of our conflict and our disconnection was because I had believed a lie that said I actually needed to feel ashamed of missing God. And so, like, I just, I kind of hid my heart away because I didn't want to experience that shame anymore um, of missing the voice of the Lord in my life. And once that kind of whole idea was broken through and and now it's a lot different, but that was that was super real for us, and that was super real for me um, in that journey uh, for sure. But yeah, it's it just catches people up. There's no such thing as there's no such thing as just the one. It's not that God doesn't tell some people, hey, this is my best for you in season, or hey, that's like that's your spouse. I can see them, you know, clearly in front of you. But if if you're like, no, nah, Lord, I'm not really ready for that, you'd be like, cool, like we'll try next season, right? Because that's how faithful he is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you hit on because you said, like, the Lord said protect your heart, not not bury your heart, yeah. you know? So I think there's a big difference in protecting it and just hiding it, and it's, like, buried under 10 feet. Nobody can get to it. There's a big difference in that. 
Uh, so I love that. I love you guys already. Yeah. I think you're so fired up, so incredible, so amazing, and uh, super stoked uh, for this week together. Hey, can, can I ask you guys a question? So, uh, so just so that our church doesn't think that we're just like hanging out on the beach all the time, can we do an uh, Insta story? So, like, would you guys be willing to, like, make some noise, like, for Jesus? And, like, ready, my love? Okay. Here we are, fire and fragrance. We love these guys. Woo!